you look out at the universe, there are 100,000 million suns in this galaxy of ours alone. And if only, say, one in 10 has got planets, that may mean that to every single person on this earth, there's somewhere an inhabited world. That's about the number of inhabited worlds in this universe, one to every man, woman, and child on this earth. Well, it seems very unlikely that on many of those who won't be races that would regard us as somewhere back in the Stone Age. A superior races, you said. You mean, well, I mean morally, uh, intellectually, uh, philosophically, no scientifically, wars, technologically. Well, a superior race cannot have war because war is a self-liquidating activity, and I am optimistic about the outcome. Either to be, either to, to destroy himself or to be perhaps even more noble than ever, is that it? Yes. So the choice is ours. The choice is ours, and it's really a privilege to be born in this age, the most critical in the whole history of mankind. I remember the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, that curse has been visited on us, but I don't think it really is a curse. It's a privilege. And it could be a blessing, too. It could be. I think it's a perfect preface to a quite marvelous novel, or a challenging one, by Carl Sagan, Contact, published by Simon & Schuster. Of course, you know Professor Sagan for his quite marvelous uh, series on uh, PBS, and also he's the professor of astronomy and director of the Laboratory for Planetary Studies at uh, Cornell University. And I think the novel, this novel Contact, is the very theme of Arthur C. Clarke is pretty much what it's about, isn't it? Well, it's, uh, it's an ancient human theme. You can find it in, uh, in virtually every culture, in uh, some guise or other, in uh, religion, folklore, superstition, and now in science. The search for life elsewhere uh, is uh, remarkable in our age because this is the first time that we can actually do something besides uh, speculation. We can send spacecraft to nearby planets. We can use large radio telescopes to see if there is any message being sent to us lately. And you, you, this, this question through the ages is that, is there what some intelligence out there that's right, and it, and it touches with the, to the deepest of human concerns. Uh, are we alone? How, how common is uh, this thing called life, this thing called intelligence? Uh, where did we come from? What are the possible uh, fates of intelligent beings? Need we necessarily destroy ourselves? Might there be a, a, a bright and very long future for the human species? Of course, it's not accidental. You've written this at a certain time. It, appears the year 1985, 15 years away from the year 2000, when, for the first time in the history of our species, he, she can destroy him, herself, all of us. So at a certain moment, you've written it, too. It's true, and, uh, and the, uh, the threat of nuclear war is one of the sub-themes of the book, and the, uh, the approach of the millennium uh, is another theme, because I think it's very likely that uh, this will... Uh, lead to uh, millenarian uh, fervor and uh, even uh, religious mania, as it did a thousand years ago when a thousand A.D. started approaching and people uh, just went a little, well, this little crazy. In, this is in your book. Uh, the central figure is a woman astronomer, uh, and she asks what Bronowski would call impertinent questions. Uh, Eleanor Arroway, and it's a woman who's an astronomer, and she's caught by, with this idea and ideal. Yes, uh, it's true. And, and uh, it was a, really a great deal of fun to, uh, to do this in, in fictional form. It's the first, first novel I've, I've ever attempted. And 
I discovered that the, the novel gives you a kind of freedom that you just don't have in nonfiction. I've written uh, on the possibility of extraterrestrial yeah. intelligence before, but only, only in nonfiction. Yeah, but with this novel, though, we have all, all the scientific information that you have and that your colleagues, I noticed that one of your colleagues, not in the writing of the book, but in your discussion, is Philip Morrison, who ironically enough worked in Los Alamos. Indeed. So we have two two aspects here. Indeed, the the, the man who triggered the the, yeah. uh, the Nagasaki bomb, and also uh, one of the uh, absolute leading spirits in the uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, today. You're calling also throughout. You have these little epigraphs, quotes from the various minds, the poets, the philosophers. And Keats, what's that Keats phrase in Ode on the Grecian Urn? Oh, about, about uh, unheard melodies are sweeter. Sweet. Than and so are. it's the unheard melody that may possibly be heard. There are always this. What are you, Carl Sagan, scientist, astronomer, enlightened man, you think, you with Arthur C. Clarke, think that indeed there may be some sort of intelligence out there? May. Surely, surely may, but uh, we don't yet know, and, and you know it's important not to uh, to decide before the evidence is in. But there certainly is a kind of plausibility argument for extraterrestrial life, and it goes something like uh, like this: There's uh, we now realize an enormous number of planets. In the last few years, uh, telescopes in Earth orbit and ground-based telescopes have found a range of planetary systems around the nearby stars, some in the process of formation, as the solar system was four billion years ago or so, uh, others apparently fully, fully formed. So there's a lot of potential abodes for life. That's one thing. Then there's the question of organic matter. The, the molecules that make us up, the carbon-rich complex molecules that are essential for the kind of life we know about, are fantastically abundant. They litter the universe. We see them in asteroids and comets and the moons in the outer solar system and even in the cold, dark spaces between the stars. So the stuff of life is everywhere. And then there's time. Uh, there are billions of years for biological evolution on all those worlds. There are many worlds that are much older than ours. And so you put those together, lots of places, lots of organic matter, lots of time, and it seems very hard to believe that uh, our paltry little planet is the only one that's inhabited. Yeah. So this is the challenge of <coughs> Professor Eleanor Arroway. And there's an observatory, and she has several people working with her in this place in Puerto Rico. Uh, no, in, in, oh. um, in New Mexico. In Mexico, yeah. At the same time, you have many uh, sub-themes here, themes. One is her own attitude, personal toward her stepfather and her mother, and she loved her, the guy she thought was her father, and she dislikes this guy. So she's also at times a little nasty to somebody close to her. This is an interesting thing. But now she's looking for the big thing. And there's a president, <laughs> president, a, a woman. And now we have a great deal of humor in the book because it also deals with certain minds that deal, if we go out there, it's us versus them, the Russians, obviously. Mm -hmm. We're going to put our flag up there. <laughs> it's true. The, and, and I think that, uh, that the receipt of a message from space would, uh, at least at first, uh, be, uh, fall right into the, uh, the standard kinds of rivalries on the planet today. So the uh, United States and the Soviet Union would see some way to make, uh, to make such a signal redound to their particular local political advantage. Uh, I think... Uh, 
Some religions would be uh, delighted, other religions would be uh, severely threatened by the receipt of such a message. Well, you know, you have a marvelous uh, several passages and pages dealing with the very thing. Some felt threatened. Those that, that is, that turf is being trespassed upon, their special interests with military, religion, industry, all variety. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good the way it is with the conflicts the way they are. That's right. Any, any challenge to the conventional wisdom uh, will be opposed by, uh, by lots of people, and we can see that in all sorts of aspects of our, of our lives, uh, in which, uh, you know, Einstein said after the uh, first explosion of nuclear weapons in 1945 that uh, the release of nuclear energy has changed everything, except, he said, our way of thinking. And it's exactly our way of thinking that has to be changed if we are to get through this period of uh, technological adolescence. Every new discovery has uh, a, uh, of this sort has a great deal of resistance attached to it. You can go back to uh, the Copernican view that uh, the Earth uh, is not the center of the universe, that the sun and the planets and the moon and the stars don't go around the Earth, that the Earth goes around the sun. A lot of people were tremendously upset about that because... They wanted the Earth to be the center of the universe, humans to be the pinnacle and apex of creation. Galileo was threatened with torture because he argued that the Earth moved around the sun. You know, take that a step further, Professor Sagan. In the year 1985, just as we discovered that the Earth is not the center of the universe but a, a respected star, among others, around the sun, so maybe the time has come when there is no one nation that is the center of this earth anymore. If you can bring it down, that all because of the new energy in the world. Well, the I think that's absolutely true. The long-term trend in human history is to bind up the planet to make us one species. And the, uh, the threat of nuclear war works very much in that direction. I mean, it's a, clearly a, uh, a battle between binding up the species and destroying it. And so something happens in, in the novel, Contact, and it is about contact with out there. There's sounds. Sounds are heard. All sorts of sounds. Radio sound. waves. Radio waves. Right. And Professor Arroway and her colleagues. And now something new has happened. And now the scientists are gathering here. What is it that, what was it that was detected? Well, the, uh, as I imagine it, yeah. there will be uh, a multi-layered message. First, there is a, a beacon, an announcement signal, something that says... Uh, Pay attention. This this is not some uh, natural astronomical phenomenon. This is a signal from intelligent beings, uh, and I try to describe how how that works. Then the next layer is one that says uh, uh, this message is directed specifically to you guys on Earth. This isn't directed to anybody else. And uh, the the third part of the message is is the real content. Uh, which is a very complex uh, uh, set of data in a new language which is also explained and which uh, is an invitation and the detailed instructions for building a machine of unknown purpose. And that machine to <laughs> perhaps reach... Right. I mean, the, Vega, the place called Vega. Right. The signals in the novel, the radio signals, come from the star Vega and the uh, presumption... Um, is that the instructions are to build a machine which somehow or other conveys five people to, uh, to the Star of Vega. I don't want to uh, discuss too much uh, more about what happens after that. No, for, no, I, I think saving. there's something very funny here. <laughs> now, 
meantime, since this is, involves the whole Earth, the whole planet, uh, there's a Soviet scientist called Vege Lunacharsky who joins a friend of hers. There's a Chinese guy who's an interested in, in the findings of the tombs of Xi'an. There's an Indian woman, and there's a Nigerian Nobel laureate, a physicist. And they're all there. Now the question is, who are these beings out there? Are they fooling us? Suppose the machine is a doomsday machine or a Trojan horse. So now we have doubts. Maybe they're not friendly. Right. And uh, I think, again, that's, uh, that's inevitable that humans would uh, project their hopes and fears upon the cosmos. You can see this happening in, uh, in virtually every Hollywood attempt to portray extraterrestrial life. The standard Hollywood attempts are, uh, are to portray the extraterrestrials as uh, red of claw and fang. Uh, pointed heads. Uh, pointed heads and nasty dispositions is the standard uh, uh, Hollywood convention, I'm sure reflecting the, uh, the opinions of those who make the movies. Uh, Steven Spielberg has made a, uh, an important uh, step forward to e. show E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to show the possibility of benign extraterrestrials. But even there, the, uh, the extraterrestrials as portrayed are only slight variants on human beings when the evolutionary record is clear that uh, extraterrestrials would be very different from us. And also, they're not awfully smart. The uh, his his extraterrestrial sweet but not smart sweet but not smart yeah. uh, sort of Pillsbury doughboys in uh, in uh, close encounters, um, but uh, I, I still think he has he has done a uh, a, a very good thing uh, step up from the usual Hollywood portrayal of this. Uh, if you look at timescales, you realize that our civilization is the most backward civilization in the galaxy that could communicate at all because we've just invented radio telescopes just a few decades ago. We had not the ghost of a chance of communicating with anybody else. So if we receive a message, it can't be from anybody less capable than we because anybody less capable can't communicate at all. So it has to be somebody much in advance of us and maybe as much in advance of us as we are in advance of the ants, say, or the worms. And... Uh, that uh, is very different from the standard science fiction convention of uh, humans versus Klingons, say, who have almost exactly the same technology as we I think one of the scientists in, in the book Contact of Carl Sagan has said, hey, we may just about be starting high school. Or someone once said, we're still living in prehistory. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. We, we tend to have such a narrow view of our place in space and in time. And the, uh, the prospect of... Uh, of making contact with extraterrestrial intelligence uh, works to deprovincialize our worldview. And I think uh, for that reason, the search itself, uh, even without a success, has uh, great merit. And so since the sounds of the waves have been heard, now the scientists of the world over gathered, now they have a common venture. <laughs> this is beyond Russians and beyond Americans beyond Chinese, it's suddenly out there. Right. So now there's a common venture of, of building the machine, who's going to get on the machine? But in the meantime, there's a governmental guy named Kitts, and he reminds me of a certain number of uh, officials. Everything. And, and page 90, he's saying, Dr. Arroway, let me come right to the point. We're concerned with the best interests of the United States for this information to be generally known. It suddenly reminds you of science when the atom was split, doesn't it? 
certainly many historical uh, examples that come to mind. Um, I guess it should be said that those uh, those officials are doing their duty as they uh, as they see it, but uh, very often that duty, combined with the duty of their adversary officials in the other nation, work to the great detriment of the human species. But I'm thinking when when the atom was split, we know that science there's a brotherhood, an international brotherhood of scientists, and so there is no secret really, is there? Well, in in uh, in almost all cases, there are no secrets. The uh, the physics behind uh, the development of the fission bomb uh, were known to scientists all over the world in 1939. After uh, Hahn and Strassner uh, announced in a published paper the uh, the possibility of a chain reaction, and so we have the analogy here. Step further, and so we have two things going. There's a tunnel vision on the part of just officials thinking in ritualistic terms, and the scientists who suddenly, what appears to be a great discovery, made. So there's a conflict right there. Right. The, the, the scientists, as usual, are devoted to free and open inquiry, yeah. and uh, the government officials, as uh, it's not always the case, but as is often the case, wish to uh, restrict and constrain and uh, prohibit lines of communication. And uh, this uh, this tension is, uh, in a way, inevitable. You know, the phrase you use here, one of your characters uses it here, about the earth, earth people, us, we, are so benighted. He said the earth is the ghetto of the universe. <laughs> We're the ghetto of the universe. Well, in in the sense of uh, of being in a uh, in an extremely backward and obscure part of. Uh, of uh, the Milky Way galaxy. We're 30,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. We're in the now, galactic boondocks. Uh, we explain that again. 30,000 light years. A light, light year, year is how far, it's a distance, how far light travels in a year. Light travels 186,000 miles in a second. So in a year, it travels something like a uh, little less than six trillion six trillion miles. That's one light year. Six trillion miles, one light year doesn't even get you out of the solar system. That's, uh, that's still at the uh, outer edge, probably, of the belt of comets that surrounds the sun. So multiply that by 30,000. Multiply that by 30,000, and that's the distance from here to the center of our galaxy, which is composed of 400 billion suns, more or less like our own. And this whole galaxy is only one of probably hundreds of billions of other galaxies, a useful calibration of our place in the universe. And so, here's this machine. And to travel 30,000 light years to get close to this place called Vega, where somehow these waves tell us there may be uh, an intelligence, as Arthur C. Clarke and you both say, superior to right. ours. Someone or something is sending yeah. those messages. And now who's going to go? And by the way, this, this book is full of humor, I point out. Throughout there, there's a counterpoint here between the traditional non-thinkers, not thinkers, non-thinkers, those whom Einstein's talking about. Nothing's changed as far as they're concerned, except technology. But now... So there's Eleanor Arroway. First, there's a guy named Drumlin, and he was a skeptic, wasn't he? But he was converted. He was converted. When the data became good enough that uh, 
that there was no alternative. And so the American finally will be. He, he's there's an accident. He can't make it. He can't make it. And so Eleanor Arroway is the American. And then there's her friend, the same associate, Lunacharsky, the Russian. And there's a Chinese scholar and uh, Indian, East Indian woman and the Nigerian Nobel physicist. And so now they're in it. And now they have encounters of a sort, not of a third kind, of a wholly different kind. <laughs> and as a, as a, we, I think we, we could say, without going with the plant, that discovery they make when they return is not believed, because they have no evidence, because this is a spiritual kind of, as well as it, the no, discovery. I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say that. I mean, uh, the, there is an ambiguity that is uh, built into the plot for, uh, for reasons that I think are hope are coherent uh, let's to go hold off on. For, uh, for another theme and then perhaps talk okay. about the world today since in and concerning this particular novel and conjecture there's also religion and science now she does have she encounters a guy you think is a fundamentalist uh, oh not follower more billy graham-esque i'd say palmer joss uh, palmer joss now here comes something involving humility on both parts that is they find humility Science and religion, and the arrogance in both parts. Right away, that's uh, that's just what I was trying to uh, to get across. And you're the the first interviewer who said it that uh, that succinctly. Um, yeah, I think there is a tendency in uh, in both schools to uh, of thought to think that they have a corner in the truth, um, and uh, it uh, may very well be that the universe is uh, is more subtle and complex than either imagines, but. Uh, I mean, a way to look at it is is the following: science and religion, on some level, are uh, are after the same thing. Take uh, the question of our origins. Uh, both of both science and religion attempt to approach this question, but the religions all contradict each other, so they can't all be right. For example, uh, the Judeo-Christian Islamic religion holds, uh, if you believe it literally that uh, the world is about 6,000 years old. You just count up the baguettes in the Old Testament. It's very clear, 6,000 years old. Well, um, the Hindus, in their holy books, uh, have an infinitely old universe with an infinite number of creations and destructions of the whole universe. Now, those two major religions can't both be right. The world can't both be 6,000 years old and infinitely old. Only, at most, one of those two views can be right. So if the religions contradict each other, and the religions, at least uh, some of them, have to be wrong, uh, how do you tell which is which? How do you tell which is right and which is wrong? Well, the only way is to appeal to the natural world around us. And the natural world around us shows that the Earth, for example, is about 4.6 billion years old, nothing like 6,000 years old. So a literal reading of the Bible simply is mistaken. I mean, it's just uh, some people who, who feel awkward about that uh, but it's simply wrong. It's just wrong. Uh, that doesn't mean that the Bible can't be a source of inspiration, that it isn't a great uh, literary work, that it doesn't uh, give valid uh, moral and ethical prescriptions, but uh, as a work of science, it is flawed. It's uh, the science of the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, which and we've learned something since then. Um, so this kind of debate goes on in, in contact uh, between the scientists and uh, 
and the religious uh, people, and, and there are excesses, suffice it to say, on both sides. Yeah. And by the debate is very, very moving one. Turns out to be quite moving in the end between Eleanor Arroway, scientist, and Palmer Joss, preacher, and both learn something from one another. Well, you quote Einstein, you know, again, I mean that the cosmic religious feeling, he is religious in that sense, is the strongest, noblest motive for scientific research. So there's a religion of sorts that Einstein believed in. Right, but it's just, it's very yeah. different from yeah. uh, most people's uh, view of religion. Yeah. Einstein, uh, Einstein talked about God, but for Einstein, God was uh, little more than the sum total of the laws of the universe. And, uh, and there was no hint of intervention in daily life, of the efficacy of prayer, of life after death, or any of those accoutrements of the Judeo-Christian Islamic religion in Einstein's view. There's also, if I can go back to the humorous aspects of it too, since we have this intelligence, appears to be intelligence out there, now the officials down here are worried or those who run things, they may be seeing things down here, such as some of our television programs. Yeah, something really to worry about. I mean, uh, <laughs> if you, in a way, it's it's such a uh, such an ironic note that the uh, the artifact of human culture that would first be come upon by an extraterrestrial civilization is our television broadcasts. Look what's in those programs. Heaven help us. And not only that, they'll be seeing, oh, this is the president is asking questions of the scientists. You mean they'll be seeing everything? The car crashes, wrestling, the porno, cha evening news? Everything, Mrs. Ms. President, says the scientist here, who is a close friend of Dr. Arroway. Does this mean, says the president, as for all my press conferences, my debates, my inaugural address are out there? That's the good news, Mr. President. The bad news is, so are the TV appearance of your predecessor <laughs> and Nick Nixon and the Soviet leadership and a lot of nasty things your opponent said about you. It's a mixed blessing. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have that going on. And then we have to include, there's a figure here who I find very fascinating someone named Haddon. Now, Haddon is, he's a little beyond the others. As an industrialist, he outthinks all the others. Haddon. Yeah, he's um, an enigmatic figure. I don't know who I, uh, I uh, based him on, uh, but uh, he is, uh, gee, hard to talk about him without giving away yeah. more than I want to oh, give. No, no, but yeah. but uh, he is uh, an extremely wealthy industrialist with a, uh, a uh, sense of uh, making new departures, which by some of which by accident offend a whole lot of people. And he is in a quest to do something worthy with his life, yeah. something he yeah. will be remembered so by. So he invents things, something called ad nicks that does. Now we know, you and I know, people who watch TV know that the commercials are in many cases, infinitely more carefully produced than the feature, whatever it might be. Not that the feature is that good, but much. And the sound is louder. He's invented something that knocks out, that mutes the sound of the commercials. He sounds like a savior or so. <laughs> right. But you and, can see the ad industry would be annoyed. And the ad industry, and now there are political presidents and others who, and he has something called jive nicks. Well, here's Preachniks, which, preach uh, which is a uh, context recognition device so that, uh, so that when a particular sort of uh, 
of uh, semi-religious remarks come on, then the uh, TV set mutes itself as well. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, this is a technology that's by no means out of uh, uh, beyond reach. That uh, the the idea that we are forced to listen to uh, to commercials that uh, are are mind-numbing in their insignificance uh, is, of course, the price for uh, for so-called free TV. But uh, it's perfectly possible and certainly constitutional to have an, a, a device which cuts out the commercials. Well, I'm looking for a Haddon to come visit us. Now, we've touched on the book because there's more, naturally, there's more, and there's a, there's a wind up here that's quite moving, too, because it deals with her personal life again, a discovery she made about herself. And indeed, she and the preacher, uh, there's almost a, a modus vivendi that works out. And so, which leaves us. It's not accidental you wrote this book now. And so it comes to us now, thoughts about, uh, well, the obvious question I ask Carl Sagan is, are we going to make it? Well, prophecy is a lost art. Um, but uh, I certainly think it is within our ability to uh, survive the, the very real world crisis that we are in right now with 55,000 nuclear weapons in the world. But I don't think that uh, the solution comes from sitting on our duffs. I think it is only by informing ourselves of what the actual circumstances in the world are, uh, developing a kind of uh, baloney detection kit so that we can see through the, uh, the uh, misstatements that are handed out by uh, uh, government leaders of various stripes and nationalities uh, and the courageous willingness to... Uh, to enter into the, the debate on the main issues of our time. It's only through that that uh, we can save ourselves. And uh, while the prospect of, uh, of extraterrestrial intelligence, I think, is real, I do not myself believe that um, anyone up there is going to save us from ourselves. I think we have to save ourselves. So it's a question of either, well, the, it's an old-fashioned word, activism, that is also awareness and as against uh, apathy, default. I suppose the word is default, losing by default. It's, uh, it's true, and it's, uh, it's like that old uh, phrase that's used by both the left and the right, that the, uh, that the eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And eternal vigilance doesn't just mean uh, uh, being aware of possible military threats from the outside. It means being aware of possible uh, governmental uh, stupidities from the inside. You know, I say, uh, the, the word pugwash is a word that is strange to many listeners, and yet there it was, has been. Do they still meet with the scientists of they the do. world? They do. They still meet. meet, but they're much less effective than they once were. Yeah. But that, that, uh, that was an opportunity for scientists of the East and West to get together to talk about uh, serious uh, issues that affect the fate of their countries and the world. And uh, in the... Uh, 50s and 60s, they were able to, uh, to bring their nations a little bit to their senses. There's a thought hanging, of course. What next? Next is to do, to act. But, mo but you say to become aware. Now, leads to a question of the media itself, doesn't it? If you, now, you had a program, and you have no doubt more, on public TV. Cosmos. So, Cosmos. That's quite, you know, enlightening and, and exciting. So there, to some extent, there are. There's Bernofsky's program and several others. But 
there's still a long way to go as far as the means of information. I think that's true. On the other hand, uh, radio and television are potentially such powerful means of uh, communication, even of uh, subtle, intricate, difficult ideas, certainly of, uh, of simpler ideas. And uh, I can't help but, uh, but uh, be discouraged about how, uh, how little use is being made of those media, how, how far short they fall of their great potential to uh, educate and enlighten and, and sweep people up into, uh, into the great issues of our time. Yeah, funny, even, even, I mean, I, I don't know science. I'm horrible in talking to a distinguished astronomer, uh, Carl Sagan. The very radio and TV work in a certain way, don't they? The waves you're talking about that lead to Vega out there are these waves that enable us to see and hear. Uh, exactly right. The ordinary light that we uh, yeah. see with the naked eye is just another kind of, uh, is one kind of light, and radio waves are another kind of light. We just don't happen to be able to see them with the unaided human eye. We can make machines that detect, that see radio waves, and they're called radio telescopes. And it's with the radio telescope that... Uh, that the imagined signal uh, is detected in, in contact. You know, as you're here, because I can't let you go just yet, because we, we know that it's been mentioned often what would happen if there were a nuclear disaster. You often spoke of nuclear winter, what would happen even, even if all the human race were not destroyed. Perhaps you could expand that. Nuclear winter. Sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to spend a few minutes on it before I go. Um, Nuclear winter is one of those uh, things that simply hadn't been anticipated, a kind of uh, monster hiding in the, in the nuclear arsenals uh, of, of both nations. And the basic idea is, is very simple. It's that in a nuclear war, you, uh, you will inject fine particles into the atmosphere. You blow up a nuclear weapon on the ground to destroy some hardened missile silo, and you pulverize the ground and vaporize, in fact, the ground, and the resulting fine particles are propelled to high altitude. You explode a nuclear weapon over a, a city, and you burn the city. The fine, dark, sooty particles rise, uh, heated by the sun, and they are propelled to high altitudes. Well, if you have a nuclear war, you make a lot of fine particles over much of the northern mid-latitude target zone. It turns out, to our great surprise that uh, the amount of uh, fine particles is sufficient to darken and cool the earth. Uh, the northern hemisphere gets, uh, in many, many cases, um, conceivable nuclear war scenarios, uh, the northern hemisphere gets socked in, uh, and uh, the particles cross the equator into the southern hemisphere, and much, maybe all, of the world has this climatic catastrophe, which has many uh, dreadful consequences, but uh, one of the most serious is that uh, agriculture is wiped out and uh, food supplies disappear and massive starvation ensues, even in parts of the world that never received a nuclear weapon at all. Now, additionally, it turns out that even a tiny fraction, maybe less than 1% of the global nuclear arsenals, are adequate to produce nuclear winter. So we suddenly discover that uh, our global civilization surely, and possibly even the human species, is threatened by the arsenals of nuclear weapons. 
Now, the arsenals are so obscenely bloated, 55,000 nuclear weapons in the world, almost all of which are more powerful than the bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 20,000 strategic weapons ready to go halfway across the world to, uh, to destroy the potential adversary. And we are told uh, nothing to worry about. They're in good hands. Uh, uh, they wouldn't all be used. Um, cities wouldn't much be targeted. Uh, but these are uh, very hollow reassurances because uh, uh, you have to be sure of computers. You have to be sure of, uh, of the command links, the so-called permissive action links. You have to be sure that no madmen achieve high office, not just right now, not just in the United States, not just civilian leaders, but civilian and military leaders in the United States and uh, many other countries now and for all time to come. That's taking too much of a risk. It's elementary planetary hygiene to clean the world of these nuclear weapons. So that's, uh, that's nuclear winter and a little uh, uh, editorial comment on it what is. we should do about you, it. You were saying, be, be, before I release you, <laughs> you, you were saying that uh, some madmen might do it. The very nature of the 50,000 nuclear is madness in itself. I quite agree. And the thing is that these weapons developed without hardly anybody paying attention. It was just... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an ordinary citizen. This is technical. I, I don't know anything about it. And anyway, it's very painful to think about. And I just hope those guys in Washington know it and, and Moscow know what they're doing. And uh, I'm going to go back to mowing the lawn. I know the last question. You just gave it to me. The ordinary citizens, people out there know more than I do, which they said, of course, during the Vietnam War as well. The Pentagon knows more than we do. Now, I don't know these things. The fact is it's not that difficult for a person who is not a scientist to understand, is it? Absolutely. I, I think people start out as scientists. I see this when I talk to first grade kids. Their questions are beautiful, inspiringly uh, uh, deep questions. Um, and then something happens to turn them off. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the schools. But I think everybody can understand science. Just as you said that, you talk to first grade kids. The very opening, the first epigraph, the message of the book, Contact by... Carl Sagan. My heart trembles like a poor leaf. The planets whirl in my dreams. The stars press against my window. I rotate in my sleep. My bed is a warm planet. Written by Marvin Mercer, PS 153, fifth grade Harlem, New York City, 1981. An example of what I'm saying. Yeah. Dr. Carl Sagan. And the book is contact uh, Simon and Schiff to the publishers and grazie. Pleasure to be here.